Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, my name is Renika Cheney. I'm a woman shepherd here at Christ Central, and I have the honor of reading scripture this morning. Um, our scripture today comes from Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 35, and then chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies being Ishmaelites all wore earrings. Gladly, they replied, they spread out a cloak, and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, all 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father Joash at Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abizar. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Bareth their god. They forgot the Lord their god, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. One day, Gideon's son Abimelech went to Shechem to visit his uncles, his mother's brothers. He said to them and to the rest of his mother's family, Ask the leading citizens of Shechem whether they want to be ruled by all 70 of Gideon's sons or by one man. And remember that I am your own flesh and blood. So Abimelech's uncles gave his message to all the citizens of Shechem on his behalf. And after listening to this proposal, the people of Shechem decided in favor of Abimelech because he was their relative. They gave him 70 silver coins from the temple of baal Barath, which he used to hire some reckless troublemakers who agreed to follow him. He went to his father's home at Ophrah, and there, on one stone, they killed all 70 of his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon, but the youngest brother, Jotham, escaped and hid. Then all the leading citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo called a meeting under the oak beside the pillar at Shechem and made Abimelech their king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning. My name is Josh Kim. I'm with the pastor this year. Glad you could join us this morning as we continue our sermon series in Judges titled Imperfect Savior. And today we'll be in Judges chapter 8 and 9. I'm sure you are very encouraged by those verses that you read today. Um, as you go further into Judges, you realize it's going to be a downward spiral into lawlessness and hopelessness. Um, and we'll see that. But in the midst of that, we'll see the gospel hope. And today's title, uh, sermon is titled, Be Our King. Be Our King, the rise and the fall of Gideon and Abimelech. 
In the recent news that you all probably watched and followed, King Charles III was crowned as the next constitutional monarch of Great Britain. It is a crowning event, perhaps once-in-a-lifetime event, as they said, who are witnessing from this home. I know there are some people that got up early in the morning to watch this live. And this, of course, happened on the heels of death of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest ruling monarch of Great Britain and the longest reigning woman monarch in the history of humanity. Upon her death, there were praises flowing from many people around the world, praising her for stability, grace, and firm resolve that she has displayed throughout her reign as the Queen of Great Britain. However, on the flip side of the tributes that were pouring into her life, there were also mixed reactions to her reign as well oftentimes mainly coming from formerly colonized nations under Great Britain, Great uh, British Empire. For all the accolades the Queen received in her being stoic, consistent presence throughout her reign, her lack of a policy and indifference towards atrocity done under her watch in places like India, Kenya, and other colonized nations makes her legacy, let's say, a little bit more complicated than we would like. As Ghanaian, Nigerian, American columnist for Washington Post, Karen Atia wrote, black and brown people around the world who are subject to horrendous cruelties and economic deprivation under British colonialism are allowed to have their feelings about Queen Elizabeth as well. She says, after all, they were also, quote unquote, subjects too. And before we say this is right, this is wrong, the reality is Queen's life is mixed bag results at best, both good and lots of bad as well. And when we examine the life of Gideon, the judge that we find here in chapter 8, we come to the same conclusion, don't we? Here is a judge whom God calls the mighty hero who is able to deliver Israelites out of one of the most harsh oppression at the hand of the Midianites with mere 300 soldiers. If anyone had uh, the highest peak of any judge, Gideon might have one of the better arguments of being the goat, the greatest of all time, of all judges, right? But his downfall, as we find in chapter 8, is just as spectacular. And not only spectacular, but very sudden. It comes right on the heels of his, one of the greatest victories the Israelites ever experienced. Further, his legacy of the downfall is tragically passed down onto the next generation, his son Abimelech, as we read today. And this is a phenomenon we face way too often in today's culture. The leaders whom we looked up to, we love to follow, found to be a lot more self-serving than what the public image portrays itself to be. I wish it is only in politics that we could say this and nitpick it at that, but it is often found in the churches with pastors, leaders who have fallen from the grace. So this is not only about what's happening out there, but it is also happening in here, in the midst of us. But we don't only need to look at those in power and authority to realize the danger is lurking just around the corner for all of us. How about us? How about you and I as we walk in this path 
walking with the Lord. As one theologian writing about this chapter wrote, a terrible spiritual danger is coming. And the danger involves only receiving success in your life. The terrible danger that you and I face in our journey with the Lord is only receiving success in our lives. Why? Because when we only experience success, our hearts will soon forget the grace of God and falsely make us dependent upon our own. And if there is any warning to this truth that we find, we find it in these two chapters in the story of Gideon and Abednelech. So without further ado, let's dive in, shall we? Looking at the life of Gideon and Abimelech to show us the warnings of what it means to fall from the grace of God. The first point that we see is falling from the grace to vanity. Falling from the grace to vanity. In 1991, Aung San, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, an activist, who gave up her freedom to challenge the ruthless army generals who ruled Myanmar for decades, was awarded prestigious Nobel Peace Prize. She was hailed as an outstanding example of the power of the powerless. Many stories were written about her, and many praised her work as someone that fought against military generals often ousted from her rightly elected position as state counselor. She endured house arrest upon house arrest, consistent threat by the powerful military to keep speaking out against depression. But since recapturing her role as a state counselor and leading her country, she's now defined by something else, something that she actually stood against. In 2017, the news reported that hundreds of Rohingya Muslims fled Myanmar to nearby Bangladesh due to the army crackdown in this mostly Buddhist country. Now Myanmar, under her leadership, faced accusations of genocide at the International Court of Justice. The one who was hailed as power of the powerless is now silent and came as much of a surprise to any of us watching this unfold. Now, when we meet Gideon in chapter 8, we're on the heels of one of the most amazing victories of the Israelites ever, right? The word general who's able to go in against the army, the vast army of Midianites with 300 and now he's chasing these leaders. The job is not done yet. He's chasing Jeva and Jemuman, two kings of Midian. But soon the judge who experienced God's grace now faces opposition. In the beginning part of chapter 8, we see Gideon facing two oppositions to his leadership. The first opposition comes from the tribe, family group of Ephraim. We didn't read this, but basically their issue was, hey, why didn't you include us when you went to fight the battle? Right? This is a great battle that you want, but why didn't you call upon us to help you, to share in the glory? And how does Gideon respond? In verse 2, the Gideon replied, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover graves of Ephraim harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan, Eviezer? God gave you victory over Orab and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianites' army. 
what have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. You see, his answer to Ephraim was diplomacy. He sounds a lot like the Gideon who was called a uh, he sounds a lot like Gideon who, when he was first called upon, who replied by saying, God, who am I? I'm a small of small. Right? It sounds like Gideon is showing his humility, his diplomacy, his willingness to work. But we get actually more clarity of who he is in the next opposition that he faces. Because the second opposition that rises against his rule is these two smaller cities, Succoth and Peniel. Upon chasing the enemy, Gideon's army is hungry and tired. So the first city that he comes to and asks for help is from Succoth. And he says, please give me food and rest. And he also goes to Peniel later on and asks the same thing. Please give me rest and food. But these two cities, perhaps knowing how oppressive the Midianites were and not wanting to face retribution from the Midianites, tells Gideon to get those two kings first. Get the job done and we'll help you afterwards. And you think, what is Gideon's response to that? First response Gideon showed to this large Ephraim community was diplomacy, humility. But the Gideon's response to these two cities is this. Verse 7 of Judges 8 says, So Gideon said, After the Lord gives me victory of Jiva and Jamuna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. This is Gideon speaking. In chapter 8, verse 9, in response to Peniel, this is what he says. So he said to the people of Peniel, After I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. I will tear this down. And indeed, he follows through. He kills off in these two smallest cities and follows through his threat of consequences in the following verses. And perhaps you may say, wait, 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 pastor. I get it, right? But these two cities were not nice, right? Ephraim was just asking if they could just give him food and rest, not fight with them. But notice the details here. What Gideon says to Ephraim, a large tribe already had victories that were certainly bigger and stronger than Gideon. But Succoth and Peniel, they were also under an oppressive hands of Midianites and even heard of them. So they were smaller, weak, just like Gideon was. So what we see in this chapter, church, is this Gideon being weak, to the strong, but strong to the weak. He's playing along with this large tribe that threatens him, but he's strong and oppressive against the weak. His answer to Succoth and Peniel reveals that he forgot about who he was, how God was with him, with 300 army. He expects now the glory of his achievement. He's starting his path towards grace to vanity. This path is further exemplified in the interaction between Gideon and Zava and Jamuna when he captures them. This is what he tells them in verse 18 of chapter 8. The Gideon asked Zava and Jamuna, the men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? Like you, they replied. They all had the look of King's son. And Gideon says, they were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. Gideon exclaimed, as surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. Here we're introduced to a new detail of this whole narrative. 
these Midianite kings had killed Gideon's own brothers, he says. And what we see now, what motivates Gideon to chase after these two kings and to go after them, to kill them, is his own vanity, his own thirst for vengeance. Rather than finishing God's will, there's no mention of finishing God's will in Gideon's path here. There's no mention of God's deliverance, how God is going to deliver Israelites out of the Midianites here. And if you're still not convinced about that, let's turn to our attention to the narrative we just read this morning. Upon this great victory and the death of these two kings, Israel has gathered now and asked Gideon, be our ruler. Basically saying, be our king. And they're mesmerized by all that Gideon represents now. Someone who could defeat these armies. All that he did and all he promises them, they're mesmerized by the promises. And he comes to him and says, be our king. Be our king and rule us. What is Gideon's response? Verse 23 says, Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor my sons, but the Lord will rule over you. And you're like, that's right, Gideon. That's what you're supposed to do. Judge is supposed to point people towards the great God who is supposed to rule over them. Israelites are supposed to be set apart, unlike any other nations around them, where God is their ruler, where all the nations depend upon their kings. And you're like, Gideon, you got this, right? That's great. That's the whole point. Gideon, you got this. But of course, in verse 24, subsequently, he says, however, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. And verse 25 says, gladly, they replied, they spread out the cloak. Each one threw in gold earrings he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants and purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels, Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Oprah, his own town. Doesn't that sound very similar? Have you read Exodus? When Moses goes up to the, to the mountain, what does Eli do? Hey, give me your gold. And what does he make? He makes a golden calf. And Israelites prostitute themselves and worship that idol. In eerie similarity here. What Gideon does is when he says, well, I don't want to be a king, but wait, 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 wait. Give me all the gold that you got. He collects them, right? And he creates ephod and puts it in his own town. Ephod, ephod was worn by the high priest in the tabernacle where God was present among his people. On his front or Urim and Thunim. Two stones that were used to receive yes or no answer from the Lord. The ephod designated the true place where God dwelled. It was a place where you come for counsel from the Lord, right? So basically what Gideon does is he sets up a rival place of worship in his hometown and basically tells the Israelites, come there, come to me, and I'll give you all the wisdom that you need, not in the place of worship. And guess what happens? In verse 27, it says, But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. What vanity of vanity. Here is a man who made him in God, who God made him into a great warrior, mighty hero, who said, I cannot do this, Lord. But God says, I will. I will do this through you who knew in his head 
who God was because he saw it, right? We often say, if I just see it, then I'll follow the Lord with all our hearts. But what we see is he saw it, he experienced it, he even see God working through his life through it. But in his heart's desire, Gideon wanted power, recognition, honor, appreciation for what he has done. Now the arrow that is supposed to point towards God as a judge is pointed inward saying, look what I have done for you. Well, Church of Christ, how easy we could fall into this trap. How many stories of warnings like Gideon's that we have around us. Those who are desperate for any ounce of God's grace in dire circumstances of life quickly turn around when you are out of those circumstances and say, who is God? How often have we seen and heard those who once declared the glory of God who delivered them from illness, financial ruins, relationship struggles, failures in life, only to find them forgetting who God is and neglecting His grace because of the newfound romantic interest, new windfall of money or successes one experiences. And before we say, we're not like them, we're different, we're here worshiping, we're better, oh, how quickly our hearts deceive us. How have we often declared God's call in our lives only in turn to chase after the idols? How often we long so much for community during the pandemic, but we got so used to comforts of home and YouTube and struggled to commit back into God's people. How often in our own lives we have forgotten God's grace that guided us throughout if any lesson is learned this morning from these horrific stories of Gideon's failures, it is God's call for us to return back and remember the grace of God. Grace of God and grace of God. Church, fall from grace to vanity, as we see, is a mere blink of an eye. May we seek God's grace daily, hence how Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day, our daily bread, daily mercy, daily renewal of our hearts. That's the call of all of us that are called to follow Christ. And this warning is only because of failures may come, but the destruction it brings as well. What we see is not only from a fall from grace to vanity, but second thing we see is from vanity into complete destruction. Vanity into complete destruction. <clears throat> As I shared earlier, often the fall from grace doesn't only happen in the political arenas and out there. It is often happening within the walls of our churches. And I say this with weary heart and warning to my own heart as well as a pastor of a local church. And to us as a church, because this happens way too often. Hurts me, you, our witness, and our churches. For the past couple years, I have witnessed up close and personal a fall of one of my pastors who faithfully pastored in his own time for a number of years. A pastor who I looked up to under whose watch I was called into ministry, whom many Asian-American pastors model their ministry 
after, sometimes he was called Billy Graham of Asian Americans. For Asian Americans who were taught the importance of character and integrity, I kid you not, how many times this pastor will grill us and tell us your character and integrity means everything in pastoral ministry, to which we were taught to guard and honor that with all of our hearts. When we realize he sexually assaulted one of the members of his congregation was beyond shocking to us. It sent shockwaves and still does send shockwaves to all of us that have followed him closely. And what caused our pain was not only his fall, but his lack of willingness to face those whom he hurt. I always used to admire his prayer. He's a pastor who taught us to pray, humble me, Lord. Humble me, Lord, every morning prayer. To see a pastor I dearly loved not willing to repent and headed towards destruction is a grave warning for not only me, for many who followed him. Church, I share this with grave warning with a heavy heart because I now know that I am capable just as much. And that's what we see in the life of this great Gideon as well, don't we? The story of Gideon continues its trajectory from the grace to vanity to destruction. For the first time in the story of Judges, we find Israelites falling from God's grace during the reign of a judge, not after it. Oftentimes we've been told that after he dies, Israelites fall. But during the reign of Gideon, Israelites fall. And this is what we are told in verse 28. That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime. About 40 years, there was peace in the land. The Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had concubine in Shechem, who gave birth to a son whom he named in Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old. He was buried in the grave of his father, Joash, at Oprah, in the land of clan of Eviezer. You see, Gideon continues to act like a king. There's no mention of him relenting from that. He had many wives, the scripture tells us, and concubines, which echoes again what the kings of the time did. Only kings had that many wives. But still, God was gracious to give him rest. But that's all as the fall from God's grace continues towards vanity, towards destruction. And he names his son Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? Abimelech means my father is king. My father is king. That's the son's name. Abimelech rises to power after Gideon. How does he rise to power? By murdering 69 of his 70 half-brothers. Only Jotham, the youngest, survives this massacre. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, One day Gideon's son Abimelech went to Shechem to visit his uncles, his mother's brothers. He said to them and to the rest of his mother's family, Ask the leading citizens of Shechem whether they want to be ruled by all 70 of Gideon's sons or by one man. And remember that I am your own flesh and blood. 
So Abimelech, uncle, gave his message to all the citizens of Shechem on his behalf. And after listening to his proposal, the people of Shechem decided in favor of Abimelech because he was their relative. They gave him 70 silver coins from the temple of Baal Berith, which he used to hire some reckless troublemakers who agreed to follow him. He went to his father's home at Oprah. And there on one stone, they killed all 70 of his half-brothers, the son of Gideon's. But the youngest brother, Jotham, escaped and hid. So here is where the vanity becomes destruction. Abimelech becomes a king, not by God's revelation of calling, not because God says, Abimelech, I'm calling you to lead these people. Certainly not out of the need. We don't see any need of deliverance here, right? But rather by exercise of power, by brute force. And Jotham, one surviving son of Gideon warns of such in the story using the trees as an example. He tells in Judges chapter 9, verse 8 through 14, where he says, It's ridiculous for you all, Israelites, to follow after Abimelech as a king. Live trees, the fig trees, the vines, he says, were valuable and produced main crops for Israelites, but they passed on being a king. But this thorn bush, which was supposed to represent Abimelech, which was not a valuable plant at all, were too short, shaggy, provided no shade for the heat. When it catches fire, it destroys all the crops. And Jotham basically says, Abimelech, the king that you want is that guy. And this thorn bush of a king, Abimelech, was too set ablaze of his trail, and he did that not only killing his 69 of his half-brothers, but the people that made him into a king, the citizens of Shechem, have shown to switch royalty. So later on in the story of chapter 9, Gael, son of Ebed, moves into Shechem, and he uses the same tactic as Abimelech and sways the people of Succoth to make him into a leader and says, don't follow Abimelech, I'm better. And people started following him. And guess what Abimelech does? says, yeah, you're going to follow that guy? So he gathers his people and puts end to this uprising. What he does is he kills off not only the Gael, the son of Ebed, who moved into Shechem, but driven by personal vengeance and vanity, he fights them, conquers Shechem, and killed its people. It's not all. There were people that were fleeing this massacre, about a thousand of them so, and they took refuge in the temple of their idol. But this is what Abimelech does in chapter 9, verse 49. Their king that they raised. Verse 49 says, So each of them cut down some branches. Following Abimelech's example, they piled the branches against the walls of the temple and set them on fire. So all the people who had lived in the tower of Shechem died, about 1,000 men and women. Oftentimes when there's war, only men are killed off. But detail is given that all men and women are killed by vengeful Abimelech. And his destruction doesn't just end there. It leads him to approaching a tent of Tevez to do the same thing until a destruction finds him. In chapter 9, 53, it says, A woman on the roof dropped the millstone that landed on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull and him leading to dying. Church, it's a gloomy story. 
I wish I could say, yeah, but a judge rose and this is what God has done. Praise the Lord. Great, let's go home. But that's not what it ends, right? Abimelech dies as a destruction finds him. The question is, who is Abimelech acting like? Do you notice that? Gideon started to act like the kings surrounding Israelites. And Abimelech completes that by acting like this vengeful Canaanite whom God judges. And how are the people, Israelites, acting like? By switching allegiances, left and right, going after the idols. Again, Israelites are now acting like Canaanites, Midianites, uh, Midianites, Jebusites, Amalekites, people God warns them not to follow after. Both Abimelech and Israelites start to act like the people they're supposed to not follow. And when does it start like that? When does it start to fall from the grace of God towards the path of destruction? It starts when Gideon forgets it was God who chose him while he was still weak. He forgets that God was the one who delivered him, who brought him to victory. It starts when Israelites forget that God chose them. That God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt, out of the miracles, and gave them the land of Canaan. From grace to vanity, from the vanity to destruction, begins when God is absent. Throughout this narrative, you don't see God's voice speaking. There's no mention of people crying out to the Lord or God intervening in this present moment here. God is absent. We don't see Israelites going to the Lord for the first time. We do not see Israelites needing deliverance from an outside oppressor. Rather, what they need is deliverance from themselves. Their own vanity that leads to destruction. And this pattern continues in the next two judges that we find in Tola and Jair, the judges of Israel. There's no mention of an outside oppressor. And what they need is the judges to deliver them from themselves. We see the pattern of destruction going from grace to vanity, vanity to destruction is a main message of the judges. The real enemy is not out there. I feel like a lot of times in this political climate, we often make the enemy is out there. Saying like, whoa, 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 as long as we keep the fence around this, as long as we gather together and we worship the Lord, look at us. We're the beacon of light. But judges tell us that's not true. Oftentimes the problem starts within our own hearts as we build walls around us and say, well, not you, not you, not you, but me. And this is what Israel Israelites exactly does and act just like the people that God calls them not to be. And what the biggest miracle the Israelites needed is not only a removal of oppressors here, the biggest miracle Israelites needed was a change of their hearts, repentance. That's why God sends a prophet. That's why God sends the word of God when the Israelites are walking away, not only a judge to deliver them, the word of God that says, come back to me and I have the hopes, I have the desire, I have the dreams that you could dream. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why the importance of the Word of God the coming to us in the circumstances that we're in, the life challenges that we face, it's not the, the absence of failures we need. It's not the presence of success we need, not only within our jobs, in our families, in our churches, but what we need is returning to the rightful worship of our God. 
in the midst of all that we have. Church, let's be honest. We're one of the most affluent nations. We get to sit in a nice cushioned chair, nicely packaged worship hour at times, being able to pick and choose what we want. Now you can even watch from home. So many options and choices we got. But the question that we must ask ourselves in the midst of all this is going on is, who are we truly worshiping? Who is sitting at the throne? Is brunch sitting at the throne? Is the comfort of your own desire sitting at the throne? Or is God of the universe sitting upon the throne judging? And is God of the universe whom you truly worship? This week, we sent two of more influential pastors of our denomination home to Christ. Our denomination is Presbyterian Church in America. Now, two of the pastors, first pastor is named Reverend Harry Reeder, a founding pastor of Christ's Covenant, our grandmother church, and Reverend Timothy Keller, a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, who impacted the lives of many through his writing and pastoral care, went to be home with the Lord. These two men made indelible mark in the lives of many people that are sitting here as well. They wrote lots of books. I mean, if you ask for book recommendations, you can find Keller, 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 and Reader, 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 right? You could talk about those two pastors, and you could probably have a library full of them. So many writings. You can listen to podcasts upon podcasts, all those things. But you know what amazes me most? Isn't their writings, their church's size, or even the lives they impacted because they did all those great things. But what is remarkable is that these two pastors did not forget who Christ was, no matter how influential they got. And I say that from our firsthand witnesses that are here, sitting here. Elder Mike Moore, who was discipled by Reverend Reader, often fondly talks about how he was able to still joke around with them. Even this morning, he talked about how he used to poke fun at him by saying, your sermons are too long, right? A renowned and respected leader willing to engage and listen and to grow. Reverend Omari Hill was a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church under Reverend Keller for a time and often talked about Reverend Keller as someone who would see him, talk to him, take care in his own life, in his own heart, no matter how big he was out there. These two men, no matter what stature people put on him, displayed humility, and I believe did not lose the wonder of Christ. One died tragically in a car accident. One died after a long battle with cancer. God did not deliver them out of those harsh circumstances, but God welcomed them home as a good and faithful servant. As you talk about the wrong king, Gideon, false king, Abimelech, Pastor Tim Keller talks about one true king in writing about this book, Judges. And he says, and how wonderful to look at the one each judge is a shadow of, of the one and see, he, and see how God used his position. Unlike Gideon, Jesus had every right to demand service as a king. Unlike Gideon, Jesus is the tabernacle. 
God's ultimate dwelling place on earth. Yet Jesus resisted the temptation to rule in power over nations because he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He has ransomed us from our self-honoring reactions to success and our self-hating responses to failures. He used his position as the Son of God to give us freedom from needing respect or being crushed by lack of it. Unlike the ephod, here is the one to whom we rightly should come in worship. O Church of Christ, are you worshiping our God this morning? O Christ and your church, may we never lose the wonder of our Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? As we go into time of Lord's Supper, let's worship the Lord and say, God, I come to you. May never, never lose the wonder of this moment. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer, Lord, as we think about what it means to follow after the Lord with the stories of Gideon and Abimelech. A warning for us as we think about what it means to follow after Christ. Teach us, Lord. Teach us what it means to follow after you. Not lose the wonder of the cross. Not take for granted this moment of worship. May you be present in this place, speaking to your people. Be our king. Be our ultimate king that we worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.